Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from a Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. Ok, adesso ci siamo. <laughs> Hello everybody. <laughs> It's uh, my great pleasure today to introduce Massimo Pigliucci. Uh, he will join our talk uh, on the meaning of life. And uh, Massimo Pigliucci is, um, where to begin? He's uh, <laughs> one of the greatest experts on uh, stoicism. I mean, meant uh, not only as uh, what you read on the books, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, stoicism as uh, a way of life. But uh, he started as a scientist and then slowly arrived to, to philosophy. Well, not even so slowly, actually. And uh, today he's a professor of philosophy at CUNY City College in New York. He was uh, the host of a podcast. He's uh, a, a wonderful speaker and uh, divulgator of philosophy. So... I'm really, really happy to have you here, Massimo. Thanks for accepting this invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. This is going to be fun. Yes, yes. Uh, from where to start? Yeah, given, you know, this time, uh, the um, uh, coronavirus uh, and um, all that we are witnessing uh, uh, to, to regain some sense of normalcy, Um, I know that uh, you were one of the first uh, uh, defender of the meaning of science and making sense from science, uh, you know, considering all the angles of uh, pseudoscience. Where are you today? What is the science for you today? How do you interpret all this climate of uh, uncertainties and... Uh, Yeah, no, that's a yeah. good question. I mean, uncertainty is 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 a fact of life, right? I mean, we we mm -hmm. all we're always uncertain about the future, about what kind of decisions to make or not to make, uh, who to trust or not to trust, uh, and so on and so forth. And that is actually one of the lessons of science. I mean, science, unfortunately, it's often understood uh, by uh, you know a lot of people as as a provider of certainty, but in mm. fact, it's not. Uh, if you want certainty, you need to go for religion or mathematics, but not science. Science deals with probabilities, with likely statements. Right? So if a scientist says the vaccine against uh, you know, COVID-19 works, it doesn't mean that as a law of nature, as something that uh, happens under all conditions, regardless of the circumstances. It just means uh, you know, other things being equal, statistically speaking, this thing uh, works. But of course, there are exceptions and there are situations where it doesn't work. There may be even situations where somebody actually is going to get sick as a result of, of a vaccine. And people don't like that. Uh, human beings don't deal well with uncertainty. 
that's uh, that's a major problem that we've of course seen in uh, in during the pandemic. But the the fact is, there is no uncertain. There is no alternative to uncertainty. It's just mm-hmm. a fact of life, and so you don't really have the luxury uh, not to be uncertain. The only your options you you have are to embrace uncertainty and to act accordingly or to deny it but to deny it uh, something that exists it's problematic i mean the uh, there was a science fiction writer uh who uh philip k dick who famously said that the, the the thing about reality is that it doesn't go away the moment you stop believing in it right so and that's the thing and we you don't have really an option in not believing in reality because it will not go away so my, my attitude at the moment is that I understand why some people are uncertain or some people are hesitant about you know, science. And there certainly uh, have been mistakes that have been made uh, by scientists in the, in the past, by pharmaceutical and, uh, you know, companies in the past, for sure. And we do know that pharmaceutical companies are motivated by profit. But you know, that's the kind of society we live in. Of course they are. Uh, the, the kind of companies that sold uh, us the software and hardware that we work on are also motivated by profit. That, that doesn't mean that this conversation isn't working very well because their products actually work very well. So to be motivated by profit, it's not really a good reason to say that something has, you know, is, is nefarious or, or not working. Um, and as I said, the, the, the alternative is worse because if you distrust science, uh, there really isn't a better alternative out there. And so you risk your life, the life of other people and, and so on. So, so it's, not a, it's not a good strategy. Let's put it that way. Thank you, Massimo. Was there a time in which uh, you perceive uh, a, a deep sense of uncertainty and uh, you found uh, your way back through philosophy or science or... Uh, Yes, in fact, that is that is why I actually shifted from science to philosophy, mm. uh, especially philosophy as a way of life, uh, as opposed as as distinct from just an academic pursuit. Pursuit, and there was a time in my life where I was hit all of a sudden in the span of a few months uh, with a number of unpleasant things, you know, uh, a divorce, uh, my father dying, and, oh. uh, you know, a couple of other things that happened. Nothing that doesn't happen to other people. But mm-hmm. when it, each one of those things uh, is you know, stressful in and of itself, when you get three or four of those hitting you within the span of a few months, then all of a sudden you say, whoa, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? What, what, what am I supposed yeah. to do about it? And so there was uncertainty. There was a, a situation of, you know, a feeling of sort of frustration, a feeling of fear of what the future might bring. Uh, that is uh, the reason, actually, I turned, uh, I started searching for a philosophical framework that helped me make more sense of what was happening and of how to react to what was happening. Because, you know, I grew up in Italy, in Rome, and therefore, obviously, I was a Catholic. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a default <laughs> of situation, yeah, right? I know. And then I, when I, when I got to my teenage years, I sort of rejected uh, Catholicism. There were too many things that didn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, God is one, but it's also three. It's like, wait a minute, that contradicts <laughs> logic. Uh, you know, and then you, you drink the... The, the wine and the, and eat the Eucharist, you know, the, the bread and all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden they're telling you that that is 
truly, really, literally the blood and the flesh of Jesus. And I said, well, that doesn't taste like blood or flesh. So <laughs> no, that's something wrong here. So anyway, one thing led to another. I finally, I said, no, that doesn't make any sense. Well, then what, however, because it turns out that people still need some kind of framework, some kind of, kind of way of, of making sense of life. That way of making sense of life and of how to live your life usually comes from religion, but it doesn't have to come from religion. It can come from a philosophy. In fact, I've argued actually uh, in the past that religions are one kind of philosophy uh, because mm. they, they have the same three uh, basic characteristics or components of any philosophy of life. They have a metaphysics, they have an ethics, and they have a set of practices. Mm -hmm. So imagine it this way. A metaphysics, of course, is an account of how the world works, right? So if you're a mm -hmm. Catholic, uh, that includes the notion of a creator God that is all powerful, all good, and all that sort of stuff. The second component is an ethics. That's an account of how you should live in the world. So if you're a Catholic, that's the Ten Commandments, the teachings of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is a set of practices that are, are going to help you actually implement the ethics. And if you're a Catholic, that means reading scriptures, reflecting on scriptures, going to church, praying, things like that, right? Well, a philosophy of life, let's pick one at random, stoicism, for instance. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yes. Um, works in the same way. The Stoics have a metaphysics. They think that the universe is made of matter, that the only things that exist are things that have cause and effect, et cetera, et cetera. They have an ethics. The ethics is based on the notion that we should strive to be the best human beings that we can be. And that means practicing four cardinal virtues known as wisdom, uh, courage, justice, and temperance. And then they have a set of practices. They have exercises. They have types of meditations. They have, you know, they they write their own thoughts in a in a kind of a philosophical diary to help themselves uh, improve, uh, you know, an analyze their situations and improve it. So it's it's this, it's pretty much the same thing. So when I left the Catholic Church, I thought, so what can I replace this thing with, right? Okay. And the the thing that I discovered was something called secular humanism. So secular humanism is a philosophy that has been around for maybe a century or so, uh, give, or, give or take. And it is the same kind of philosophy that is at the basis of notions like universal human rights, for instance. So secular mm -hmm. humanists have been big proponents of the notion that we are all human beings and we all should have the same rights. Uh, and in fact, they spelled out what those rights are. In fact, the, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights is basically... Uh, based on a set of humanistic principles. But when many years later, the, the crisis actually hit, right? you know, when I got the divorce and my father dying and all that sort of stuff, I reached toward for, for secular humanism and said, okay, let's see how this philosophy is going to uh, actually be helpful. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the reason it wasn't helpful is because secular humanism is a nice set of principles, so general principles, as I said, things like human rights. But, you know, when you had to deal with the fact that uh, all of a sudden you're going through a divorce or your father is dying, general principles don't help very much. It's like you want to know what, what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to deal mm -hmm. with this situation? So general principles are not enough. That is what brought me to start looking more carefully at a series of philosophies of life. I started out with Buddhism, actually. Wow. And then I moved on to Aristotle and Epicurus, 
and then one day uh, on Twitter, of all things, uh-huh. I saw this, this tweet that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, uh-huh. what the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Uh, because uh-huh. I thought, you know, that the Stoics were these these people who go around with a stiff upper lip and suppressing emotions, <laughs> you know, like Mr. Spock from Star Trek. And I said that, why would anybody want to live life like that? But I was curious and I was reminded that Stoicism uh, was the kind of philosophy that was uh, uh, lived by and, and uh, adopted by Marcus Aurelius, the, the Roman emperor. And when I was in college, I read Marcus Aurelius' Meditations mm-hmm. and I thought that it was an interesting book. I also remembered that Stoicism is the same philosophy that was also adopted by Seneca, the uh, senator and uh, advisor to the emperor Nero. And when I was in high school, I translated mm. Seneca from Latin, and I thought, like, that, that's an interesting guy right there. So I thought, okay, this if Marcus Aurelius and Seneca were into Stoicism, <laughs> it might be that there is something there. And, uh, and so that's, that's how I started uh, getting interested in the Stoicism. And now here we are many years later uh, talking about it. <laughs> yeah, and you're helping uh, so many people. I mean, personally, I, the, the class, uh, my class I introduced you to uh, felt really supported by what you said i mean it was uh, the pandemic we were in the midst of a very heavy right. atmosphere and uh, you brought some comfort i mean uh, stoicism through you <laughs> brought comfort to to people it's um, it's a practical way of living now my curiosity is uh, why not epicurus why not aristotle why not buddha right. We, right. Okay, we love Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, so certainly they set uh, a good example for this club, but what didn't work there uh, and what is working here for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And but before I answer it, let me yes. make a little premise, which is my idea has never been that Stoicism is the answer Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, you know the philo- what, what philosophy of life should I, should I follow? It is one answer, mm-hmm. and as you say, it it is an answer that is useful. It is comforting to people. Uh, you know, it is practical, etc. But certainly, there are many other possible answers. There's a number of good philosophies of life out there, and so to some extent, the choice of philosophy of life depends on your personality, on your cultural background, uh, and and on, and on whether the authors within that particular tradition actually uh, clicked with you or, or not. So for instance, when I started reading about Buddhism, I, I appreciated the, what I was reading and I understood uh, the basic ideas and I said, oh, this, this, this sounds good. However, the language was very strange for me. It was not, mm-hmm. I was uh, obviously because I was not, I didn't grow up in that kind of tradition, you know, in, in the Indian or Chinese tradition. So the language was alien to me that didn't really resonate uh, immediately. And I couldn't get around to adopt the Buddhist metaphysics. Uh, so when, when you're talking about karma and reincarnation and stuff like that, it's like, no, that <laughs> that's not, I'm not going to go there, but that's just me. It could, of it could course. work very well for somebody else. Right now, Aristotle was interesting because of course, Aristotle is, uh, typically the, in the Western canon is, is the person that is the reference person when, it, when we're talking about uh, philosophy of life that's it right the virtue ethics is basically canonized by 
by Aristotle. However, the problem with Aristotle's philosophy is that, you know, he says, look, if you want a, what, the, what the Greeks called the eudaimonic life, so a life of flourishing, you know, a life that is worth living, uh, you, have to, you have to act with virtue. You have to you know, work on your character. That's fine. I'm on board with that. But then you also have to have other things, other, what, what are sometimes referred to as externals. So you have to have a little bit of education. Uh, you have to be in good health. Uh, you have to have a little, uh, have a little bit of money. You had to have a little bit of good looks. And I was like, come on. <laughs> now, this, this kind of excludes a lot of people. You know, a lot of people don't have one or more of those things. That, that can't, it can't be right. right. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound right to me. Uh, yeah. Also, of course, famously, Aristotle thought that the highest possible life for a human being is that of contemplation. Right? So it's a mm -hmm. life of philosophizing. And I don't think so. As much as I love philosophy, I don't think that that's the highest life to, uh, that a human being can aspire to. It seems like a waste of time if you, all you do is just, just to uh, you know, contemplate uh, mm -hmm. things. Epicurus. Now, Epicurus was an interesting one because a lot of secular humanists, remember I was coming from secular humanism, a lot of secular humanists like Epicurus for a number of reasons. First of all, his metaphysics is very... Uh, very similar to modern science, right? So he was an atomist. So he thought that, that the world is made of atoms bumping into each other, you know, that sort of stuff. So that goes pretty well with a modern scientific outlook. So it's a friendly kind of metaphysics for the modern uh, point of, from a modern point of view. And also Epicurus laid uh, a lot of emphasis on things like friendship. So for him, uh, friendship was an, a crucial component of, of a good life. Uh, and uh, not only that, which is, again, resonates with moderns. And then not only that, but Epicurus also advised his, his uh, followers, his students, to, not to be afraid of death, and particularly not to be afraid of stories about the afterlife, mm -hmm. because he said those stories are just made up by poets and, and priests that want to scare the hell out of you uh, and want to control you. But uh -huh. there's really nothing to those stories. This, those, are, those are just children's tales, and you shouldn't believe them. So a secular humanist, who normally secular humanists tend to be atheist or agnostics, uh, would, would read that and, and sympathize greatly. However, there is a mm -hmm. big problem with Epicurus. So for, at least from my perspective, uh, for an Epicurean, the highest good in life is avoidance of pain. So the best thing you could do in your life is to avoid pain, especially mental pain. Mm. Now, as a result of that, Epicurus explicitly counseled his students to stay away from social and political involvement, because as we all know, those are <laughs> painful. Right? There's, there's no question about that. Absolutely. But I thought, yes, but a, but a human life without social or political involvement doesn't seem particularly good. It seems like one, one should be at least to some extent involved in one's society uh, and, and, in one's, and, and, and engage in politics. Politics in the broad sense, in the, in the Aristotelian sense of the, of the word, not, a, not necessarily becoming a politician, but being concerned with the police, being concerned with mm -hmm. what's going on in your society and try to do your best to improve the place where you live and making life for other people better. Since Epicurus counseled that, you know, that's, you should stay away from that stuff because it's painful, then uh, that's, uh, that was a, mm -hmm. a deal breaker for me with, with Epicureanism. I can see why. Of course, they were living in a time, well, it's not that different from today, although. Huh? 
uh, a time in which a lot of biosas, you know, leave uh, hiding from uh, right. all the political uh, messiness. Uh, it's right. uh, the way for you to sustain your soul and to live a quiet life. Exactly. And then, uh, what did you? I mean, uh, you were going through a very difficult moment uh, in your life. Uh, Probably there was a sense of, okay, I have to find a way to start again. I have to find uh, yeah, my meaning, my way. And what answers did you find in Stoicism then? How did Stoicism help you to find your way back to your life? Well, the first thing that I discovered studying Stoicism was what the modern Stoics refer to as the dichotomy of control, although... Mm. That's not a term that you actually find in ancient Stoicism. But the concept is, is very interesting and very important. And in fact, it is a concept that is not found only in Stoicism. It's also found in other traditions, including Buddhism, Judaism, and even uh, Christianity. Mm. But in Stoicism, it plays a fundamental role, a much more crucial role than in other philosophies. So the dichotomy of control basically tells you that Look, certain things in life are under your control. You can, you can actually act on them, and other things are not. Uh, you, you can act, but you don't control the outcomes of, of, of your actions. You, know, the, the, you may try to do something, but, but ultimately uh, what happens is not under your control. And the Stoics say the wise person focuses his or her uh, efforts on the things that are under their control, and cultivates an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things that are not under your control. So what does that mean? For, for instance, uh, we are in a pandemic. Still are in a pandemic. I know that some people still. wish that this were gone, <laughs> but it's not. It, we're, we're still yeah. in the middle of a pandemic. So what is under my control and what is not under my control? Well, under my control is to begin with, with refresh my mind about knowledge, pertinent knowledge. What is a pandemic exactly? <laughs> what is a virus? You know, how does that work? What is a vaccine? And I'm not talking about becoming an expert in epidemiology or virology or anything. I'm talking about Wikipedia level kind of understanding, right? But why? Because you want to be informed. You're, you're all of a sudden you're trusted into the, into this very unusual situation. A, uh, you know, the first time that this happens in this, this century, or in fact, in a, in a, in a century, and you want to know what's going on. You want to have some. So that's under my control. Also under my control is to make practical decisions about how to handle the pandemic. Uh, for instance, after you know, I started listening early, early on to uh, the experts and discussions about what you should do and you should not do, I started practicing social distancing. I started uh, sanitizing my hands. I started wearing a mask. As soon as it became available, I got a vaccine. Right. Those are all things under my control. What is not under my control is, first of all, the pandemic itself. I, I can't just wish it away. Right? It, it's, it's here. I have to deal with it, which has a lot of consequences, limitations on travel, or now that travel is possible, it gets more complicated. You know, I was just in Italy recently oh. and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for a conference. And uh, yeah. the first, the, one of the first things I had to do as soon as I got in was to look for a pharmacy to get a COVID test so that I could come back. Right. <laughs> so it's like, well, yeah. that didn't used to be the case, but it is the case. And now, you know, the decision to travel was mine. And if, and I knew 
that if I decide to travel, then this is the kind of stuff that you have to do. So there are a lot of things that are not under your control that you cannot even influence, in fact, right? Mm -hmm. Like being the, the rules on, on airplanes or, uh, you know, or the rules that different countries uh, have now uh, put in place for travel. That's sort of All of those things, you just have to accept them, that there's not much you can do. Now, there are things that you can influence, of course, uh, but you don't control completely. For instance, I would like not to get sick, right? That would, that would, be, that would be nice. And so far, I've managed... <laughs> To avoid the virus, oh, I'm glad. Uh, you know, but that is not under my control. If you think about it, what is under my control is to do my best in order not to get sick, which turns out to be the kinds of things that I just mentioned: get a vaccine, wear a mask, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? But actually, not getting sick is not under my control. Because even if I do everything right, I could still get the virus. Viruses are sneaky things. As a biologist, I can tell you, you know, you could do everything right. And then you're just unlucky. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then you, you, you still get it. So the notion that the Stoics have basically is that efforts and decisions are up to you. Outcomes are not. And once you internalize this, life becomes much simpler. Because all of a sudden you started seeing everything as, well, does this belong to me or does it not belong to me? Is it up to me or is it not up to me? If it's up to me, let's work on it. If it's not up to me, just set it aside. Don't even think about it. I try not even to think about the fact that we're living in a pandemic. Not because I want to deny it, but because there's nothing I can do about it. So if there is nothing I can do about it, then why the hell am I worrying about it? It's, it's, it's not productive. It's, uh, now, of course, it's difficult not to worry about things like, you know, getting sick. And that's why it's a, it's a process. You, you work on it. You know, philosophy is not, philosophy as a way of life is not something that you suddenly adopt and then it, it works and that's it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a work in progress basically for your entire life. The Stoics actually had an interesting way of putting it. It's like, it's similar to uh, working on your physical fitness, right? So if you say, I want to get fitter, I want to get a you know, better aerobic capacity, better, you know, more muscles, you know, that's sort of, great. So how, how do you do that? Well, for instance, you start exercising, let's say you join a gym, right? And then you start learning about the different uh, exercise regimes and machines, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't just learn about them. You have to actually use them every day, right? Or at mm -hmm. least several times a week. If you don't yeah. use them for the entirety of the rest of your life, you're not going to get the benefits. Knowledge by itself, knowledge of the machine mm. doesn't do anything if you don't actually put that knowledge into practice. And as soon as you stop practicing, you're going to lose the benefits, right? So it's just like going to the gym. It's a lifelong commitment. You don't, you don't just do it for a few days. That's an excellent metaphor. Yeah, super clear. Look, what about uh, fun? What about pleasure? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, the Stoics, as you said at the beginning, they are often seen as uh, this kind of uh, strange animals that uh, are always very serious. In our common language, uh, be a Stoic uh, seems to be somebody above its own emotions and uh, right. Right. detached, aloof, and so on. Uh, 
yeah. In reality, it doesn't work that way, uh, exactly. obviously, because human <laughs> beings don't, as I said, that, that, that would really not be a particularly, uh, you know, good life for a human being. What happens is that the Stoics have no problem with pleasure because they say that pleasure is in accordance with nature, meaning that it comes natural to human beings to seek pleasure. And in fact, they also have no problem avoiding, try to avoid pain because pain is against nature. People don't want it. Naturally, people don't want to you know, get hurt. However, what they say about pleasure is that you should own your pleasures and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. So pleasure is fine, but uh, because as a, as a component of a, of a normal human life. But if pleasure starts driving everything you do, that is that if pleasure becomes the objective of your life, if you indulge in pleasures and nothing else, that, according to the Stoics, is not a particularly good life. It's not a particularly meaningful life. And as it turns out, modern psychologists agree. There is a lot of research on, uh, in modern psychology, especially in something called positive psychology, which is meant to focus on the uh, constructive and positive aspects of a human life as opposed to the pathologies, right? A lot of psychology ever since Freud has focused on the pathology, the pathological part. But then psychologists, like about 20 years ago, realized that, like, wait a minute, there is also this other thing here. That people actually want to have a good life. So what, what do we ta- tell people that want to actually have positive answers? Well, uh, modern psychologists have now pretty much confirmed empirically what the Stoics and other ancients not just in the Western tradition, had intuited. That is, a human life is not a good life unless it has not just a hedonic component, pleasure, right, as in hedonism, but also what they called a eudaimonic component. Eudaimonia, I've already mentioned the word, is the word that the ancient Greeks used to uh, refer to a life worth living. So a eudaimonic life is the kind of life that you get to the end of it, you look back and say, yeah, that was, that was not wasted. Right? That was, <laughs> I didn't waste my time there. Uh, now, a eudaimonic life, a eudaimon- the eudaimonic component of life has to do with meaning. You have to do things that are meaningful. And pleasure by itself is not sufficiently meaningful psychologically for human beings. It turns out that you have to do things like mostly uh, involve yourself in the projects that make sense to you, especially if those projects are helpful to other people. Mm. A major source of eudaimonia, a major source of meaning in people's lives comes from doing things that are actually helpful to others. You know, mm. think about it this way. There is, again, research uh, on uh, people that are on deathbed, so near the end of their life. And psychologists have asked them, so what kind of things you regret and what kind of things do you think you did well? And surprise, surprise, nobody regrets uh, not having gone to one more dinner in a nice restaurant or, or to having spent more time on Facebook or anything like that. What they regret usually is not having spent enough time with family and friends. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's relationships that, are, that appear to be important, not Uh, not pleasure per se. Pleasure is a spice. It's definitely a spice of life, right? So if you uh, cultivate friendships with your friends, you you might as well do it over a nice dinner and with some, you know, wine flowing, you know, that sort of stuff. So pleasure is is important. I don't think, and the Stoics, again, 
do not deny that. But if it becomes your major goal, then you're missing something important in, in life. Thanks. That's very wise. And what do we do when it's exactly our relationships to be affected? Uh, meaning, um, when we perceive that we are always seen as wrong or as the weird one or the the piece that is not fitting in the in the group <laughs> i don't know have you ever experienced that or do you have advice for uh, for that feeling when yeah. creating bonds become extremely difficult change group right yeah <laughs> change group. Like, go, uh, go to another group if you don't fit in your group find find another one uh, actually epictetus who was a second century early second century stoic philosopher writes about this uh, quite a bit and he said well to be specific epictetus never wrote anything one of his students wrote uh, a couple of books based on on uh, on conversations with Epictetus, but let's say more or less Epictetus says. So Epictetus actually deals with this issue, and he says, "Look, be careful the kind of company you keep, because which is of course the kind of advice that your mother probably gave you when you were a kid, right?" Uh, now, why why does he say so? He says because on the one hand, you want to be helpful to others. And, and, you know, because that's part of your, the meaning of your own life, you know, being helpful to others, you know, helping others is, is a good thing. But if you are with people that drag you down, if you're the people that ignore you, if they are the people with people that uh, dislike you, you know, for whatever reason, arbitrary reason, then you're probably wasting your time. Then, then you're, not, you're not actually getting through at some level. You're not being able to, to uh, interact with those people. Now, it's possible that there is something actually wrong with you, uh, right? I mean, it's, that, that's always a possibility, in which case the Stoics do advise uh, self-analysis, right? So that one of the standard Stoic techniques is to keep a philosophical diary, to write uh, about what happened to you that, it's, that, is, that was important uh, today, let's say, and ask yourself questions like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? You know, that sort of stuff. So, and sometimes you might need help from somebody else, like a therapist, for instance, uh, because th there may actually be something not particularly good about, about you. You know, there, you, there may be something off about you. But more, more often than not, it isn't about you. It's about that you hang, hang around for whatever reason with the, kind of, with the wrong people. That, you know, if, if it turns out that a lot of people in your group don't appreciate you, don't, uh, you know, they, they try to exclude you, et cetera, et cetera, then probably you need to look for other people. You probably need to do for other people, look for other groups if, if possible. And it usually is possible because especially these days, we live in a society where it is actually fairly easy to reach out uh, by a variety of, of means, both in person and, and online. And, you know, I know we're all down on social media and for for good reasons, uh, but social media is just a technology. It depends on how you use it. Like every other technology, you can use it badly uh, and make your life, you know, meaningless or miserable. Or you can use it, uh, you know, for a, for a good purpose and actually improve your life. So, I would say it is it, it it's a question of 
being able to choose your friendship, your, your, you know, the people that you hang around with. And that is part of wisdom. Uh, in my life, for instance, especially after I got into uh, stoicism, I occasionally reevaluated certain friendship. And I said, you know what? Turns out <laughs> this person is not really that good for me. It's not, it's not, you know, it's just not happening. And so you need to uh, move on and, and do something else. The same, of course, goes for more intimate relationships. I mean, you know, partnership and, and love are big, big deals, obviously, in, in our lives. And the Stoics are very cautious about this. For the Stoics, love is important, as it turns out, because uh, building a, a deep relationship with somebody else is an important component of your life. It's basically a very special type of friendship, right? at least ideally. Right. But there are also lots of situations where the thing doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, uh, saying things like, oh, but I'm in love with him, no matter what. Well, no. What do you mean, no matter what? Uh, if he's abusive, then maybe you should just leave. You should you just move away from 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 it. Right. If, if it's not and it, we don't need to get to situations where people are abusive. If if a relationship is not good for you, then then ask yourself, why the hell am I staying in this thing? Um, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to, you want to, it's a, again, it's, it's striking a balance between running away at the first, you know, the first problem, I mean, you know, you don't want to do that because otherwise you, you never get into a deep relationship with anybody, either friends or, 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 or partners. But at the same time, you know, at some point you have to see the writing on the wall and say, okay, this is really not good. So let, let's, let's do something else. Let's, uh, let's move on. And what about uh, when commitment issues show up? Is this yeah. uh, an opportunity for uh, self-analysis or uh, is it just that uh, you really don't see yourself fitting with anyone and then you have to keep going, but then you question yourself, uh, what, what do you do <laughs> in this situation? Yeah. So, you know, we often hear the, the phrase uh, unconditional love or yeah. unconditional commitment. I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> it's, it's a really bad idea. Uh, you cannot have, love is always, or relationships in general, they're always conditional. Mm -hmm. uh, they are conditional on reciprocity for one thing, right? So I, I'm giving something to, to this relationship, but I also need something back from it. Uh, the relationship that are asymmetrical where one is the saint and the other one is a jerk are not particularly good. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not healthy relationships, right? Relationships of, of extreme dependence. You know, it's one thing to be helped by the other person through a crisis or, or uh, in, in practical terms. But if you're dependent on the, on the other person so that you cannot actually function without that other person, then there is a problem and then there is an issue. So this notion of, of uh, sort of unconditional love is something that we got from the romantics. Uh, and it's a bad idea, just like many ideas that the romantics put forth in my mind, <laughs> at, at least. I'm not very sympathetic Much. to the romantics. Um, because, because it too easily slides into abuse or, or at the very least into taking advantage of you know, the, the, the other person. I mean, I suppose you could make an argument that uh, a relationship should be, a, a, you know, a love relationship should be unconditional in the case of children. You know, you love unconditionally your own children. Uh, 
even that, however, so, you know, I can imagine if, what, what if my child turns out to be a mass murderer, for instance, uh-huh. should I still keep loving that person just because he shares 50% of my DNA? I think that's at least questionable. I mean, it's like, no, not, not really, not, not necessarily. Uh, you know, so, so even there, I think one can, in extreme cases, at least you can make an argument, but in the case of friendships or, or partnerships, you don't have to get to the mass murdering level. Uh, there is much earlier, you can reach a point where you say, no, this is not good. So, so you vow. So again, it's a question of wisdom and, and, and trying to find the right place uh, or the right level of, of commitment, right? In fact, often we do use the word level of commitment. Mm-hmm. Use the word level. Mm-hmm. That means that it's not a yes or no. It's a, it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. It goes from zero to 100, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so you have to decide that, you know, when, when you, let's say you get married or you enter into a uh, stable partnership of any kind, you're vowing, of course, a certain degree of commitment to that person. And that vow should be taken seriously. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not joking. You're, you're not, you, you're actually starting, you know, trying to, to start a life with somebody, but it has to be understood that if that person starts beating you up, you know, either physically or psychologically, then, then there is a point where you can say, you know what, I am taking that commitment back. <laughs> it's not, this is not working. This is not a good thing. Yeah. So a, a kind of, uh, you know, as you were saying uh, a, a few moments ago, Uh, keep uh, exercising uh, your reason, keep exercising your knowledge uh, and uh, checking at each time uh, where you are, where you want to be, where it's rational to be. And look, uh, uh, did it ever happen to you with your work, with your research uh, to have to open uh, a direction? I mean, to not fit immediately, but nevertheless... uh, uh, finding a way to make your mark, uh, to, to be there. I mean, I know that you transitioned from uh, biology to philosophy. Right. You changed also the geographical place where you lived. Uh, were yes. born in Liberia and then went to Rome and then the U.S. That's right. So yeah. uh, this has happened a couple, at least uh, a number of times, at least a couple that are uh, perhaps... More, most relevant to, to our discussions. One is when I moved to Tennessee uh, from Connecticut, and that was because of my profession. So, you know, I got a job at the University of Tennessee. And uh, that was a culture shock because <laughs> Tennessee is a quite a different place, not just from <laughs> Italy, but, but even from Connecticut. And so I thought, I, you know, once, once I moved, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. I'm not going to be able to fit very well in, into mm. this kind of environment because like, for instance, I was, a, you know, an evolutionary biologist and I, here I was in the middle of the Bible belt, basically, <laughs> right. Surrounded by creationists, including my neighbors. Uh, you know, That's so how it started. Right. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and so it's like, okay, now what? But it turns out that I was able to find my niche, even in under those conditions. First of all, I turned, as Marcus Aurelius actually would, would put it, uh, you turn an obstacle into a new way of doing things. Oh, so all of a sudden, I'm an evolutionary biologist in, in Tennessee, surrounded by creationists. So let's start talking about the nature of science in public. Mm. Let's, let's start actually turning this from a problem into an opportunity 
of mm-hmm. you know, talking to people in a, in a certain way, try to bridge uh, gaps between, uh, between science and, and religion. So I did that for several years. And also I looked for people that I could, again, we were talking earlier about, you know, do you fit in your, in your group or not? Well, I looked for different kinds of people because the ones that I met randomly in Knoxville, it wasn't working. Uh, it was not going very well. So I looked and, and I found, finally found a number of people. And eventually by the time I left, I've had uh, friends that are, you know, lifelong friends. They're, they're still, oh. they're still uh, uh-huh. there and we still interact on a regular basis. So that was the first uh, big situation where, where I had to deal with, you know, not fitting. And then the second one was when I changed my profession from evolutionary biology to philosophy of science, because right. naively, as it turns out, I thought, well, here I am, a scientist, you know, with credentials, you know, 20 plus years of research and all that sort of stuff that wants to do philosophy, but it doesn't just want to play at the philosopher. I actually went back to graduate school and got my PhD in philosophy. So I thought, hey, that my new colleagues in philosophy are going to take me seriously because I actually got, you know, I did the hard work and my old colleagues in science are still going to be, you know, sort of taking me seriously because they've known him, known me for almost a quarter century turns out is it was difficult initially to be taken seriously oh, wow. seriously by philosophers because they saw me as an outsider mm. as you know here comes the scientist who wants to play uh philosophers you know, what, what does he know does has he really read kant because that's typically the one of the tests. Like, has he really read, read Kant? And the answer is, yes, I did read Kant, in fact. I took a whole damn course, on, on graduate-level course on, on Kant. Uh, so it took me some yeah. time. And then I also started noticing some skepticism from my former colleagues in biology because they couldn't figure out why the hell is he leaving? You know, why is he working, uh. going to the other side of campus? You know, maybe... Maybe he was not able to do research anymore. Maybe he ran out of ideas. You know, maybe there was something or he wasn't getting grants or something like that. And it turns out, no, that was my decision. I was getting grants and up until the, you know, from the National Science Foundation, up until the moment I moved. But, um, but it was difficult. So I, now from an insider, I become an outsider. It's like, why, that, why does he do philosophy? You know, mm-hmm. why, why is he going over, over there? It, it took some time. But now I then again, there too, I found my niche i found a number of philosophers who are seriously interested in science and actually welcome somebody who has a background strong background in science because that's an advantage that's right rightly seen as an advantage not a a disadvantage and i have some colleagues in um among my biology uh you know colleagues and friends who have sort of come to terms with my decision and they're now intrigued and they now you know they talk to me about it. it's like so what what are you doing there and what what is it so but it did take some time it, it took a few years to to figure it out why did you move what was the what motivated your decision you know a lot of academics do get mid-career uh i was uh, when when it happened to me i was a, already a full professor with tenure at the university of tennessee and and you get to mid-career and you look and you say okay i've been doing this for 20 plus years now do i really want to do the same exact thing or thereabout until i retire for you know for another 20 or 30 years and in my case the answer was no 
Uh, now, a lot of a lot of this is not unusual among academics. A lot of academics ask themselves that question at some point during their career, and a lot of people actually do change focus. But what was unusual in my case is that I changed focus by by changing discipline entirely and going exactly. across you know across campus basically from the sciences to the humanities. A lot of my colleagues would would change uh, you know topic of research. Uh, they might even change field, but go nearby. So, for instance, uh, you're an evolutionary biologist. You got you become interested in ecology, or you are molecular biologist, and you start working on you know microscopy or something like that. That is actually fairly common. What what was uncommon, therefore, in my case, it wasn't the fact that I felt the need to change uh, midway through my career. That's fairly. Uh, frequent. What was uncommon was the kind of decision that I made. That kind of jump. That uh, that's that's unusual. I don't know many people that have actually crossed uh, from the sciences to the humanities. And was philosophy because you were in that moment in your life uh, that you described before, uh, or uh, in uh, part, yes, mm, in part that mm. was it. But actually, the reason for philosophy was in uh, went back all the way to high school. Um, when I was in, in Italy, I did the Liceo Scientifico, the mm -hmm. scientific lyceum. So I had to take three years of philosophy. And my teacher uh, was Enrica Chiaromonte, was you know, a great teacher. And so she oh. really made the, 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 the discipline come alive. And I had an interest in philosophy ever since high school. So I started reading philosophy on my own, especially philosophy of science, but, but also more, more broadly. And then something completely serendipitous happened. When I was at the University of Tennessee, uh, they hired, the philosophy department there, hired a young uh, philosopher of science, Jonathan Kaplan, who had just defended his thesis at um, um, Stanford. And Jonathan's thesis was on uh, nature-nurture issues, mm -hmm. so on, on, the, on the interaction and complication of nature and nurture, which is what biologists call gene-environment interactions. And guess what I was doing as a, as a biologist? I was working on gene-environment interactions. So when Jonathan came on campus, he knew my name because he has cited my, some of my work uh, in, his, in his dissertation. And so he called me up. He said, you know, I'm, I'm new in cam on campus. I've just been hired. And, you know, my thesis uh -huh. has lots of references to your work. Would you mind, you know, going out and having a coffee so we can talk? So we did. And we hit it off. Well, immediately we became friends. Uh -huh. uh, he started coming to my lab meetings, interacting with my graduate students and postdocs. Uh, we started collaborating on papers together. And then, you know, a year or two later, I said, hey, Jonathan, how about... <laughs> Guess what? Guess what? I, I want to be a philosopher. How, how about you, you, you become my mentor? Oh. Uh, and, uh, and he looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Because <laughs> I was, a, as I said, a full professor with tenure. He was an assistant professor without tenure. So it was like a very different, very unusual situation. Mm -hmm. But he kind of he came around and uh, it worked great. Uh, you know, we, we had a lot of fun for uh, three years or, or thereabout. And then we uh, co-published together a my dissertation, which uh, is called uh, Making Sense of Evolution, is published by Chicago Press. And so it was a lot of fun. So it, wor it worked out very nicely. But it was this combination of having an interest in philosophy since high school, plus the mm -hmm. serendipitous appearance of Jonathan Kaplan on campus when I was having <laughs> just at the moment that I was thinking, hey, wow. I need to do something different. <laughs>
incredible. Well, I'm very, very grateful to your uh, high school teacher and uh, to your friend because you are you are doing so much with philosophy in our society that uh, okay, thanks. <laughs> to, <laughs> See, and Enrica would be happy. Enrica <laughs> yes. would, would be happy. Unfortunately, she died a few years ago, and in the oh. the. Uh, the f- part that I regret is that I actually dedicated a, a book that I wrote about the interaction between philosophy and science to her, and I sent it to her, and uh, I got a response from her niece saying, "I'm uh-huh. sorry, but Enrica just just passed uh-huh. away," and it's like, <laughs> "Oh well." So yeah. she would she never knew uh, <laughs> how much impact she had. But that's the that's an interesting story in 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 itself for teachers. You know, uh, teaching is a you know to some extent a thankless job because you never know what kind of impact if any you're gonna have mm-hmm. on your students and sometimes like in, in in the case of Enrica and myself the impact literally took decades right? <laughs> yeah. so you know to, to to the point that when it actually happened she Incredible. actually just died <laughs> but uh, so she would never know but nevertheless uh-huh. she you know I owe it to her uh, if I was able to do uh, th- th- these kind of things so so you never know yeah, that's really beautiful. You know, as you said uh, before, we need to keep uh, doing as much as we can at the best of our capacities because, um, right. yeah, giving something to people, whether you're reciprocated or not, uh, uh, at least in our job, at least in our way of being in the world, yeah. brings meaning, brings happiness. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, sometimes people say, but that's a lot of work. It seems like a lot of work. And you, Yeah, it, that's it's what I always hear. And my response is the one that I heard since I was a kid from my grandmother. I had a grandmother from Naples. And uh, her response was, ti riposi quando sei morto. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you'll rest once you're dead. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. all right. <laughs> That's a typical <laughs> Italian, yes. Napoletano, I would say. Yes. Uh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, what do you do? I mean, do you want to just... Right. What are you going to do? Nothing? For lie the, around. Like... Yeah. Exactly. At least this brings meaning. At least this brings sense, purpose. Yeah. And uh, it leads us to our final question. Time just flew by. It's incredible. Uh, my last question for you is... Uh, What's the meaning of life? What do you think is <laughs> a light? Oh, that's life, a short one. That's, that's, a, that's an easy question. It's going to take just 30 seconds. Just 30 no problem. Seconds. Yeah. So to yeah. some extent, I think that is, forgive me, I think that is the wrong question, but I'm going to explain mm-hmm. of course. why. Meaning that uh, meaning is not out there. You know, people often think of, of, oh, what is the meaning of life? As if it were something to discover, something that, you know, you point mm-hmm. the telescope somewhere and you find the meaning, right? But it's not. It's not out there. Meaning is constructed by us individually. Mm-hmm. We, in a sense, make up the meaning of our own lives by what we do, by the decisions we make, by the courses of action that we take. Uh, and therefore, there is no universal meaning of life. For me, the life of a teacher and, and, and academic is meaningful, but for somebody else could be you know, extremely boring and nothing to be excited about. Uh, somebody else might have other things in mind as, as meaningful. Now, that said, there are some commonalities. There are some, some basic things that are actually common to all meaningful lives and we know this both by intuition by sort of self 
introspection, etc. But also because modern psychology actually, as I said before, give us data, gives empirical information about this. So for instance, uh, different people find different professions to be meaningful. Uh, and, and if you are lucky enough that you do you have a job that is meaningful to you as opposed to just a job that you have because you have to pay the bills at the end of the month right that does become a part of your identity and and therefore part of what gives meaning to your life i mean if i were doing something that i completely dislike or at least had no particular interest in uh just because i as i said i have to pay my bills well that that part of my life would not be part of what makes it meaningful Mm -hmm. uh, but because I'm lucky enough to do a job that I actually love, then that is part of the meaning of my life. But it's not the only part. And the part that I think is common to everybody is the one that we were talking about earlier, that is building meaningful relationships with other people. Friendships in particular, obviously partnerships with people. If you have children, then relationships uh, with, your, with your children. Those things are an important and pretty much universal component of a meaningful life it's like it's really hard to imagine a human being having a meaningful life if that person has no deep relationship with anybody that doesn't mean you want you, you want you know hundreds of friends in fact aristotle will say you cannot have hundreds of friends because a friend is not somebody you see once in a, in a blue moon and you know go out for a drink a friend is somebody you have a normal regular relationship with a deep relationship with and there is only so much time in the day and so many days in the week so you're not going to have yeah. many friends right you know it's it's it, it's laughable when i hear for instance somebody boasting that hey i got 500 friends on facebook i said those are not friends those, those, yeah. those are those are people <laughs> maybe because half of them are probably bot russian bots but you know, but they're not friends. Yeah. If you have three or four of those people in your life, you're pretty lucky. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's a pretty good result right there. So I think that the meaning of life is self-generated, is internally generated. It's not universal. It has components that are not universal, uh, meaning that what makes my life meaningful may be different from what makes your life meaningful. But there are some components that are meaningful. And those components are relationships, friendship, partnerships, et cetera, and the, the ability to pursue projects that you find important for whatever reason. Absolutely. Super clear. I can't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Massimo. This conversation was, uh, yeah, not, you know, clarifying, inspiring. Uh, uh, I, I hope uh, it will... Uh, yeah, it will bring some wrinkles uh, of wisdom uh, around the world and uh, who knows what Let's <laughs> will <hope>. come <laughs> up from here. Let's hope. <laughs> it was a pleasure so to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU Spain. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials.